Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. This podcast is a proud member of the FanHub 100. Football without fans is nothing, so we've partnered with FanHub to put fans first. Search FanHub app to play your part in the journey. Welcome to the 1865 Forest Ramble. We are hoping that under lockdown conditions you are both doing well physically and mentally in these trying times. Um, Not on the same scale, but of course it's trying being a football fan as well. And uh, this is something that we're going to come back to uh, a little bit later on. Um, We'll be having a conversation. I am joined today by Stephen Topless. Hi there. Hello. Uh, By Baz. Hi there. Hiya. And by Tom Newton. How are you doing? Hiya. I'm good, thank you. Okie doke. Um, let's start off with uh, the most recent match. Yesterday, Forrest got absolutely trounced 5-1 away at Swansea in the Cup. Um, I think it's fair to say, Tom, that Forrest deservedly lost, but there was a turning point. There was a moment of controversy, wasn't there? There was. It, it was never a penalty. He's basically kicked Wall's foot and, and gone over and um, basically the... Um, the referee's been conned out of it, but um, so would I mean we've got ourselves back into uh, the game at two-one, uh, um, and we thought, oh, we might have turned the corner. But as soon as that uh, penalty went in, I think the heads dropped, and then obviously the result of a five-one drubbing um, obviously became evident soon after. You see, we never got going after that. Mm, and and Stephen, I think um, it's. Um, it must have been particularly disheartening because Forrest were pretty dreadful in the first half. I don't think anyone would deny that. Uh, a couple of substitutions, but which were probably planned because it was Freeman and Bashru who haven't really played. Um, they came off, but the performance level went up massively in those first 15 minutes. We got a goal back. We looked like we we're coming back into it. And as Tom said, just losing that penalty in those circumstances just meant that all of that hard work was undone in a flash, wasn't it? It was, and that's the disappointing thing. Um, I know uh, you can't always blame the officials, you know, for your for your shortcomings as a team. But yeah, that that kind of decision changes the game, and we we saw that yesterday with the the momentum and the the way that Forrest had pulled the game back. In the, it's just really disappointing because it's such a basic decision that a referee shouldn't be falling for, and I think that's that's what makes it doubly frustrating. Um, but saying that, you know, at 3-1 to then go and concede another two goals, that's even more disappointing because it felt as if we didn't respond well enough to, to, to that injustice almost. We didn't use it to fire ourselves on and try and get back into the game. We, we sort of whimpered away and then allowed Swansea to, to, to score a couple more goals. And coming back to you, Tom, I think it's fair to say that the players on display 
you know, we made all of those changes to the team, but the players coming in, with the possible exception of Jordan Smith, they didn't really do enough to justify their places, did they? No, I mean, they were well short of what was needed um, yesterday. Um, but the, going into like the um, going on to the um, rest of the season, we might have to re- rely on these players. And apart from um, Jordan Smith, who he did okay, I suppose, but we might have to rely on these players. And I think it's quite worrying that some players just didn't step up to the plate when needed. So, uh, and when the suspensions and injuries um, possibly kick in, then you're going to look at them and think, well, and it's always got to come back to this Swansea game that certain players didn't um, do what was uh, needed uh, for performance, what we expected from the team. Because we thought in recent weeks we've turned a corner and we seem to go back to square one now. I know it was the second string yesterday, but like I said, we might have to rely on these players uh, for the remaining parts of this season. Um, Baz, coming to you, with, with what Tom said there, is there a bit of a parallel actually with, with last season? Because obviously um, we had the high of that Leeds match and then the low of the Charlton match where we made five, six changes to that team and the players coming in just couldn't, just couldn't do the job. It was really, really disappointing seeing the players coming in. It was one of the things I noticed was um, last season we uh, with under Lamouche we spoke a lot about how deep we used to sit and let players people come on to us and then we would deal with stuff late. It was like we were sitting really, really deep, uh, especially um, what's his name uh, Bashuri, sitting really, really deep and then not stopping them when they came towards us. And that was like it was like a fatal mistake. And then. The energy levels in midfield were completely low, so it's really disappointing to see that these these are players that are, are being given a chance to to make their mark on the team, and they they just weren't prepared to do it. it, was, it I was I was not happy with what I saw there, not at all. And speaking about the midfield, there, Baz, um, obviously lower can be so. It'd been speculated by a few people that you know he. He's not, he's like the third, fourth choice centre-back. Um, it may well be that uh, there is a possibility for him to play in midfield because he should, in theory, be able to see the game coming from in front of him, use his defensive skills there. But he's also got a little bit of ability on the ball. He's quite composed when he makes a pass. Did we see enough yesterday to suggest that that could be a position for him? Again, I was thinking that might be part of the problem was the, the fact that we were sitting so deep. So one of the things that I think has changed under Hewton, and I'm sure we'll get to this later, is that we start, we've started pressing a little bit higher up the pitch. But yesterday we didn't do any of that until the second half. And I wonder if part of that is because So is a full-on defender and he was letting people come towards him because defenders tend, uh, tend to halves in particular, tend to let people run at them and make uh, commit themselves, whereas a midfielder has to step in that little bit earlier. So that could be, I, I don't think necessarily he put he covered himself in glory in, in that position yet. Stephen, coming back to you, um, you know, we touched upon that refereeing decision earlier. Um, I put out on our Twitter feed uh, that it's, uh, well, two things. Firstly, the ref was looking right at it. Um, and then secondly, I don't know why, but I was reminded of the fact, um, this might have been because uh, my wife was so incensed at that decision that she's saying it's such a sickener to kind of, for that to be the turning point in the second half. And, um, and so it just reminded me, I think it was when he was either at Stoke or at West Brom, Tony Pulis went mental at one of his own players who had dived to try and win a, uh, win a foul. And, and he went mental at his own player in the post-match interview. Do you think that, especially without fans being in grounds, that diving is a scourge that, you know, referees are not strong enough with it, but also the problem starts closer to home. Players are doing it because they feel they have to go down to win, win fouls, but managers are also not calling it out. Yeah, it's just, it grows, doesn't it, into from a few people diving and getting away with it to then other people latch on and managers as well realize that it's it's a means of gaining an advantage and it's a high pressured game results matter and it wouldn't surprise me if managers are kind of prepared to overlook the occasional dive or two if it wins them a few extra points in the season and the same for players you know it, it's got to take strong refereeing and strong officiating to begin with yes the managers and the players they also do have to have to stamp it out if you like but 
even the governing bodies have got to come down harder on on diving and, and play acting if we really want to stamp it out of the game because unfortunately whether we like it or not it is a part of the game now and it's almost even though we talk about it and we don't like it when we're on the receiving end of a you know a decision like the one yesterday it is part of the game now it's almost that commonplace that we almost learn to accept it so I think that's where referees probably need more help um, in whether that's more officials in and around the, you know, the areas around the penalty area to, you know, pick up on these dives and, and play acting, particularly for penalties. Um, because there's so many that just go unpunished and go unseen. And that's, I know we've been on the receiving end of quite a few down the years now. I would also add in there that, you know, once again, yesterday, the ref was looking right at it from less than 10 yards away. What, how much more clear could it be? Tom, I'm going to come to you because Anthony Knockart has been sent off earlier this season for getting yellow cards for diving. And I don't think you'd have found a single Forest supporter and not even his manager even attempted to defend him for that. Um, it's not good enough, is it, from the players or from the refs or from the managers? No, I think I think the one thing that winds fans up is the consistency levels. There's so many refs who will give something for if somebody dives. Then yesterday, it was a, um, a dive and it's a penalty. And Lockhart um, did it the other week and got a second booking for it. I think the consistency just annoys fans. There's no... From like... this. I think too many referees are too weak. Then there's an, um, some referees are relying on VAR even if it's not there. I, and I just think consistency um, from referees has just been, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And, and Baz, um, you know, I started off by mentioning that thing to do with fans not being in grounds. Um, I know that's a particular bugbear of yours. I know that out of all of us in our podcast group, you're finding it particularly disheartening not being able to go. You really hate having to watch the matches online and you're just finding it so hard to connect. And I think we all are to a certain extent. Do you think that that's also having a bearing upon the behaviour of players? Uh, absolutely. Um, we were just talking, I mean, I've, I've, yeah, I'll go on record saying I hate it. I hate, I, I follow, I feel very, very disconnected from the club and I mean the fact that I've got this geographical distance as well probably doesn't help but I feel very, very disconnected from the club and the, the players and everything that's going on there and I think we were just saying earlier and um, Tom was saying about the Manchester United-Liverpool game, it came across like a training match. It's, it's, it is A lot of the games do come across like training matches because without us there, without us, the fans, driving the players on and adding, and it's not just the atmosphere, it's actually, it's, it's the importance of it. It's, we, we add significance to each of the games. Um, and what we were just saying there about the diving, the diving is important because it's important to us. It's, um, and that's what's missing at the moment. There's, there's this whole emotional factor in the game that's just completely been taken out of it. And, it worries me a lot, actually, because I do feel so disconnected from it. And, um, and I think that a lot of people are feeling the same way. And just on that topic of decisions and player behaviour, surely that's affected by the lack of fans. So on a very simple level, performance level, we've had the discussion before about how your lollies and your knockouts, um, you know, they they're performers. They respond well to having that crowd to perform to. But equally, I suspect that if you are a player, you're going to feel that you can have a go at having a dive because it's not like you're going to have, if, especially if you're an away player, you're not going to have 25,000 people yelling at you and urging you to get a yellow card or a red card after that, which would have happened when there were fans in the ground. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that's probably for one for the data scientists as well is to do an analysis of how results have changed with away teams and stuff like that because I'm, I'm interested to see if there is a difference in player performance on home and away compared to when fans are there because I think and going all the way back to the 90s one of my favourite all-time games was Norwich away where Steve Stone scored a goal in the 89th minute or something and it's because us fans had been singing throughout the entire second half 
completely relentlessly and he said on the radio afterwards I was giving up but the fans kept me going and you wonder how much of that still happens how much of that 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 little extra bit where you dig in and find that extra percent or something is just completely gone out of the game at the moment and of course that was just with what about 1200 away fans on a yeah. on a Tuesday night um you know midweek away match so actually those fans can make a difference of course we we all know that be, being an away fan is is a joyous experience because even in adversity you kind of think well we're out here now lads let's let's make yeah. the most of it um by the way uh, if you're interested um you can search through our archives because uh, Baz did do a retro match report of that uh, game against Norwich uh, last summer during the lockdown period. Um, let's move on. Um, since the last podcast, we've had a couple of draws. So we drew against Birmingham and Stoke. And then we had three wins in a row, which was Preston and then the cup match against Cardiff. And then a good victory against Millwall. And of course, since then, we've had a uh, defeat against Borough and uh, now the thrashing against Swansea. A um, couple of thoughts there. Um, firstly, the Millwall match, I think, was quite important, um, Tom, because it showed that actually we'd got those results beforehand, the Birmingham Stoke draws, the Preston and Cardiff wins, without necessarily playing that well. But against Millwall, having had that little bit of momentum, it kind of came together a little bit, didn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, we um, usually struggle against the Millwall, against their, like, if you can say direct football, um, but yeah, it was uh, it was a nice change that we actually competed and, and got a decent win on the board, and the results, like he says, it's uh, all come together. Um, but then we, we lost in midweek against uh, Middlesbrough, and then we obviously the cup game yesterday, meaning Derby have ma- um, beat QPR, and that's managed to obviously um, catch up with us. I think it's level on points now. So yeah, I, I just think that if we didn't get that momentum going before the Millwall game where would we be we might be like a few points adrift but um but no it's um yeah it's i i honestly thought we turned a corner and now i'm like looked at the last few games and it's like feels like we're back to square one and um Stephen, i think with with middlesbrough to be honest i'm i wasn't too concerned about it at the time because i thought firstly it's a warnock team and they warnocked us basically um but also I was just figuring that, you know what, they just kind of, having had that run where they, they did well, they just kind of ran out of steam a little bit. And I think it's, even when you've had a, a, an unbeaten run of however many matches, you kind of need to remind yourself sometimes that, um, you know, we're not a very good team. So I think the Middlesbrough match was just us running out of steam a little bit. What do you think? I, I would agree with you. I think that a lot of effort was put in in the Millwall game. Um, and I think that that Millwall performance was probably our best of the season. Certainly, I think our most complete, where defensively we were strong. The midfield worked really well with Cafu and Yates in particular. And then in attack, we we were far more clinical and, and, and far more threatening throughout. So it probably did take a bit more energy out of the players than we perhaps appreciated at the time going into the Middlesbrough game. But... The disappointing thing about Middlesbrough was, for me, the goals that we conceded. They were, you know, even if you are fatigued, you shouldn't be conceding goals as cheaply as that. You know, to give Asambolonga the the freedom of the penalty box to put that first one away and he wasn't being picked up. And then the second where their midfielder, Savile, is allowed to run clean through on goal five minutes after the the second half starts it's just that's a lack of discipline and you know that's that was just really frustrating for me because that almost made the game impossible for us to come back and win and you know yes we got a goal back in the end but we we sort of spoiled it again towards the end with the uh the clash in the corner and and Yuri Ribeiro picking up a red card which brings me neatly on to the next point I was going to make, which is to do with, you know, confidence. Confidence is a cruel mistress, isn't it? So we had that terrible run of, um, you know, losing, um, you know, six matches in seven against those top six. 
and then we built up that confidence again and so for Middlesbrough I think it was noticeable the fact that Yuri Ribeiro and it's worth reminding ourselves he's a young man he's still only what 22 um, and he lost his head didn't he He lost his head more than once um, the red card he probably should have had a little bit earlier to be honest um, and but he, he deserved to go um, you can argue all you like about Brit's part in the in the you know the incident but that's not the point um and to me that's a sign of a player who'd you know because he thought things are going better and then all of a sudden they're being taken away so that's why he kind of had the red mist what do you think Stephen yeah I would I, I think it was just probably the first instance uh for a few games where a team has gone under our skin and made life really difficult for us and that's probably it we just we didn't respond to that in the right way and for me the most frustrating thing about those final few minutes of the game is that we still had an opportunity there was still if I remember rightly five or six minutes left to play of of injury time and instead of getting the ball forward and 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 trying to launch an attack we dilly-dallied at the back a bit lost possession, Middlesbrough ran it to the corner and then we had the blow up with Yuri and, and, and the Middlesbrough players and that that actually lost us time in terms of trying to get something from the game as well. So I just felt it was a bit naive in the end and, and something that was completely avoidable. I think that's a fair point actually because Tom, that naivety um, against Preston, uh, Lyle Taylor picked up a yellow card where Basically, I mean, I made this point in our match report with uh, our friend um, Phil from the Bonkers for Borough podcast. Um, Lyle Taylor had the chance to corner flag it and he didn't. And he ended up giving away a foul and getting a yellow card. Joe Lolly had a chance to corner flag it. He tried to go towards the goal. Come on, lads, you're professional footballers. Taylor and Lolly are old enough to know better. In those situations, you corner flag it. Borough do it against us. We lose our heads. That's something whereby we've got to learn from what a Warnock team is doing in that circumstance, isn't it, Tom? Um, definitely. I mean, like naivety comes into it. And I think some of our players are not streetwise enough. They don't do the right things at the right time. And I mean, at any level, well, not at any level, but when you're old enough, they play the, like you say, the, they play the game, just kill time, put it in the corner, the furthest away from goal than you can be. Just use your heads. But no, we don't. We always like get into a, um, a situation where something happens and like in the past you know when we uh, like last season when we let goals in the last couple of minutes we could have done something to stop that but we don't do we and I think it just keeps coming back to uh, haunt us um, near enough every uh, game at the moment just like use your heads keep it in the corner kill time um, you might get a throw you might get a corner you might get a free kick and just do the same and just um, kill the the clock but no we, we don't do it and it can be frustrating because like the person in the street says well why don't you just keep it in the corner um, but they don't and the professional footballers at the end of the day and they should know better I wonder as well if um, in the case of Taylor and Lolly uh, in the Preston match they both had torrid seasons in terms of Lo- uh, you know Lolly's had real problems with form and occasionally fitness he's just not been able to get going Taylor he came here thinking he was going to play more than he has done and when he has he's you know he's scored an okay number of goals for the amount of games he's played but he's probably frustrated and he's thinking I want to get on the score sheet to prove that I'm worth a place in the team Baz um, one thing that has been a real consistent factor in terms of you know we're doing a lot of these match reports with um, opposition fans at the moment and a real consistent theme has been no nah, you'll be all right you're not going to go down because when you have those good moments of performance you look like you're good enough to stay in the division you know mid-table etc etc um, we also saw Joe Worrell after the Brentford match um, if we go back a few weeks making the point he had that rallying cry in the post-match interview saying look we just need to have that higher level of performance. He kind of basically wants to give his fellow players a kick up the arse. Um, <laughs> what do you make of the fact that opposition fans, even after the Borough match, where we got comprehensively outthought and outfought, um, what do you make about the fact that opposition fans are saying, yeah, but you'll be all right. You're not, you're not that bad. <laughs> yeah, we deserve you know to beat saying? you, but you're not that bad. <laughs> 
So what they're basically saying is we're too good to go down. And what that actually means is we play nice, pretty football, but we don't have a killer instinct and we're soft in defence. And that's kind of it. If you look at all the goals we've conceded over the last few few weeks, they've been really, really soft goals. They've been, we've gifted the opposition tons of space. We've um, not tracked them. We've not put in, put in the, the, the little digs and the hard stuff. Um, and it's just, it's been... It's soft is the, is the only word I can come up with. And yeah, it's very nice for the opposition when we when you play that way because it's pretty and you look like you've got some skills on the ball, but you're missing a whole swathe of what you need to do in the game. And we, we've just been hinting at it there. That that little bit of street-wiseness, that bit of, um, that's not a word, street-wiseness, but you know what I mean. And um, that bit of, um, yeah, when you, you need your, your centre-half. And uh, I think Joe Worrell, probably, if... If we lose him for a significant amount of time again, we're going to be in real, real trouble because he's the only one that's got it at the moment, which is that, yeah, maybe like a little dig with the elbow or the, the shoving someone out of the way and, and putting a bit of physicality into the play. And like Lolly and Knockout look nice going forwards. Um, Sammy Ovi as well looks nice going forwards. But there's, we're just lacking that, that cutting edge, that killer instinct kind of thing. And, and soft is the only word I can think of to describe it. Stephen, I think that's that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because obviously, let, we can't. Having said that, Worrell is the kind of the defender who's got the most kind of bite to his game, and he's, I suppose, the one putting in the most effort in that respect. But at the same time, it was him who lost Brit for that first goal against Middlesbrough. Um, it's if you look at the stats, okay, it's hard to say this the day after we've conceded five goals, but defensively, we're, we're not that bad compared to other teams in the division, but we're just not able to convert chances. Now, I personally think the stats are misleading here because I don't believe in XG. According to our XG stats, we should be scoring way, way, way more goals, but actually the quality of chances isn't as good as those figures would suggest. What do you think, Stephen? I, I think there's been a few times this season where we have like that clinical edge. Um, you know, look at if you look at the, the attacking options we've got, and I think this is also a reason why opposition fans think we should be doing better than we are, because we have Lewis Graben, who's a proven championship goal scorer. We've got Lyle Taylor, who I think in the summer most of the league would have been happy signing him when he was available from Charlton. You've got Knockout, who you know, is a, a very good championship performer. And the same for Lolly and Amiobi as well, who I think a lot of teams would be very happy with. So the quality is there in attack. It's just that we can't seem to get the right, the right blend or the, you know, the right confidence in the players to, to make the right decisions. It's like we go, we get to a certain point and we don't quite put in a good enough cross or, player snatches at a chance and it, it, it is like the the attack is is lacking confidence and that's been a problem for us all season and I think that's why the, the Millwall game was was quite enjoyable because it, it the way that Amiobi took his goals it was almost like he did it without thinking and it was a little bit like that old clinical edge had come back particularly for his second goal where he just hit it first time and and bent it into the top corner we haven't seen enough of that this season and I think, I think there's just a lack of confidence in the team, and I think particularly in attack where we have got the firepower and I think we have got the quality, but these players are just not showing it. Oh, it's odd that you should mention uh, the Samiobi's second goal because the thing that I really liked about it is it was that um, Sammy cut inside, he played it to Might, and Mighton just did uh, a, a, almost an unthinking, but actually very skillful one-two with him. And then Sammy was able to take that first time shot. That's a level of fluency that we just haven't seen all season, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, it's a glimpse of what we are capable of, and, and uh, particularly our attacking players. Um, I think that's why Mighton, when he's come in, he's actually... Um, he's been quite good to watch because of his directness and the way that he's almost coming to the team and what's, what's happened, the struggles this season almost doesn't matter because he's not been part of it. He's been able to come in and just try and play his game and, and play with a bit of freedom. So I think that's why it's been, 
it's been good having him in there. I just hope that he doesn't then become a bit of a victim of this kind of confidence issue, which seems to be, you know, seems to be running throughout the team. And I mean, the other thing as well, perhaps, is that the midfield hasn't been as creative as we would want it to be. And nothing against the likes of Yates and, and Cafu, but they're not, they're not creators. They're not going to thread intricate three balls through for the strikers. That's just not their game. Um, which is why I'll be interested to see how Luke Freeman does now uh, under Chris Hewton. It's obviously first game under him uh, against Swansea. Um, still looking short of match fitness, but I, I do wonder if Hewton will look to him as, as a bit more of a creator. And also Philip Kravinovich who's come in be interested to see what role he plays in in kind of starting and, and adding some creativity to that midfield. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. Um, just briefly, Tom, uh, the good run was predicated on having um, kind of a solid core there. So uh, we had Worrell and McKenna playing as centre-half and then in front of them the unit of Yates and so. Um, it also made Bree Samba look more comfortable how damaging was it to lose Yates and So in, in that Middlesbrough match? I, th- um, I think the pair of them, partnership-wise, because we've actually got so fit and playing consistency in like a run of games, I think it's a big blow because I, I quite like Yates because I think he breaks up the play and gives it. But having said that, I just think in recent games, what I've picked up on is that the um, we've mentioned about the quality in midfield. And we, I know Swansea have got this like certain way of playing, but... I just think that our midfield takes too many touches, too many passes. And by the time we get to the other end of the field, they've got 11 men behind the ball. We haven't got the quality to break them uh, down. So and I think that's uh, quite telling in recent matches that we're just not quick enough with the ball. And then you've got players like Amiobi who had a decent game against Millwall, scored two decent goals, but then he doesn't replicate it the following, in the following match. So I just think with Kravinovic coming in, I just hope that... Um, We've got a bit of quality in there and, um, and we need to get quicker with the ball really because we don't do that um, enough, uh, well we haven't done it enough this season and that's where I think we um, have our um, downturn in um, like creativity. And I think that um, it's possibly um, important that, uh, you know, Yates got that goal against Millwall and then of course he's got injured but we've been saying that he's got this potential to kind of cut, make those late runs into the box and but his finishing has been wayward um, so hopefully once firstly hopefully we wish him well and, and hope he's not out for too long and secondly we hope that he can feel he can add the extra dimension to his game but for now we're going to take a break and we're going to go over to Jeremy. At the 1865 Forest Ramble, we are pleased to work in partnership with Flatback 4. If you haven't checked them out yet, they offer forest-inspired t-shirts, polo shirts, hoodies and jumpers, as well as jackets, kids wear and the Collymore-inspired bobble hat. They sure do. And now we have a special offer for listeners to the 1865 Forest Ramble. If you insert the discount code 1865 at the checkout, you can get a 10% discount on the Nottingham Forest embroidered club range. A 10% discount? That sounds amazing. How does that work? You just visit 1865.football slash flatback. Choose something from the Nottingham Forest embroidered club range and then enter the code 1865 to receive 10% off and support our podcast at the same time. Amazing. So our listeners can support the podcast and get some great clothing. Yes, for whatever item you buy, if you include the code 1865 at the checkout, you will be supporting our podcast. Can I find the details on social media? Absolutely. Follow 1865 Forest Ramble on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram for all the details. The 1865 Forest Ramble sketch by Jeremy Davis. After the Middlesbrough game, Chris Hewton delivered a masterclass in the art of damning with faint praise. The team hadn't adapted well enough to facing a side who, in his words, play a certain way. As euphemisms go, this is the footballing equivalent of he or she has a lovely personality, which is a relatively polite way of implying that the other party is not especially easy on the eye. 
And speaking of parties, that Borough striker looked in the mood for a particularly enthusiastic celebration after scoring the opening goal. Hewton was disappointed with the defending, but hey, how were the Forest players to know that the lad Asambalunga could finish? The linguistic distinctions in the way footballers, managers and pundits describe teams and their styles of play are as subtle as Nigel Clough's passing or Wayne Rooney's hair transplant. They play a certain way is the kind of phrase you'll only hear in connection with a team that plays direct. You'll never hear it said of, say, Barcelona, Manchester City or Pelé's Brazil team of 1970, despite the fact that they have their own unique style. They play a certain way comes from the same category as you know what you're going to get which is, again, very subtly different from you know what he's going to do, a phrase used of Stanley Matthews or Chris Waddle, invariably in conjunction with but you can't do anything about it. When you know what you're going to get from a player, it translates to he or she is a bit shit, but as long as he or she passes to someone else, we should be okay. You knew what you were going to get from Vinnie Jones, Jason Lee, but no one's ever said that about Andy Reid. By the same token, teams or players that play a certain way are often horrible to play against, despite the fact that you know what you're going to get, which doesn't say much for modern managers' famously meticulous planning and preparation. Teams like Middlesbrough might be horrible to play against, but you don't hear people say that of Saki's Milan or Pep's Barcelona, even though, given the choice, you'd probably fancy your chances of winning rather more against Asambalonga's Borough than Van Basten's Milan. Marco Matarazzi was horrible to play against, but even he never said that about Zinedine Zidane. What I can say, though, is that after yesterday's result against Swansea, the Forest team must have a really lovely personality. Thank you, Jeremy, and welcome to part two of January's 1865 Forest Ramble. Um, we mentioned there Luke Freeman, Philip Kravinovich, and trying to add a bit of creativity to the Forest team. Um, Baz, it was a mistake to have spent half a season with all of our eggs in a Luke Freeman-shaped basket, wasn't it? Um, and so we know that Carvalho's time at Forest is up, and there's a whole other conversation to be had around that, but that means that the Kravinovich signing is potentially quite significant, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's, it's one of those, yeah, we've, we've spoken about creativity there and the, the style that we move, the, how we move the ball around so is what Tom was just talking about. And I think to some extent we kind of fall under, uh, I've hinted at it and I think Tom's just hinted at it there, we're sort of falling under two stools now. So the, the Lamushi style of sitting back and then moving the ball really, really quickly to get it forwards um, on the break. And I think Chris Hewton wants to play a much higher higher pressing game further up the pitch. And then when we're in possession, working it through. And I think we're sort of stuck between the two of them. And part of that is because this is a squad that Hewton has inherited. So, yeah, Kravinovich coming in is kind of part of him imposing his style onto the, onto the squad. Although, interestingly, I can remember when we had the, the interview with the Brighton guy who was talking about Hewton's style of management and he was saying, well, he just lets the, he works with the defenders and lets the attackers do what they want. And I think we're, we're seeing a bit of that in that, yeah, the, the, when we're going forwards, we do look like we're not quite sure what we're supposed to be doing with it. And we rely on a run from Sami Obi or Lolly or something like that, which is what we would have done under Lamushi. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the coaching is clearly done in terms of shape and solidity, isn't it? Um, what was interesting is, uh, OK, Freeman, Forrest weren't good in that first half, but there were signs that with Freeman in the team, the ball was moving a little bit more forward through the middle of the park and not just a case of give it to a winger and see what he can do. Um, we're going to leave it there with regards to transfers because we're going to have a transfer window special podcast coming up uh, just after the window shuts. We're going to do it... Um, uh, after the Coventry match. So uh, we'll be delighted to join our friend George Harvey, uh, the, the local football journalist, um, for his insight and expertise on that. Um, however, you did mention about Chris Hewton's tactics and his style of play. Um, Stephen, we're halfway through a dreadful season. And it, in fairness, it's a dreadful season. I don't think there's going to be that many... Um, fans who are going to be happy with this football season in many senses because um, even if you look at this division, Bournemouth and Norwich, who really should be two of the top teams, none of them 
have massively hit the heights, even though that they are clearly a class above a lot of the other teams in the division. Um, so it's not a great season all round. It's a particularly bad one for Forrest. Um, in the bad run, there were some fans saying, we've gone backwards under him. Do you think that was fair? No, I, I think that was just people reacting and, and not really thinking about what they're saying. I think that's just frustration, to be honest with you. Um, we lost the first four games under Sabri Lamucci and, you know, it, the wheels had really fallen off with him in charge. And, you know, we, we didn't look like winning a game under him at the start of the season, despite how close we came the year before to, to actually doing something. So I think it needed, it did need a new manager coming in with new ideas and, and perhaps with a bit more experience of this league. And we got that in Chris Hewton and, I mean, I personally think we'd be mad to get rid of him. I really would. We're not going to attract anybody better if Hewton was to leave the club. And I think given time, he he will turn it around and I think he will have Forrest back at, at the right end of the league sooner rather than later. You know, give, I, I look at this role, this job that he's got, it's very similar to the one he took on at Brighton where they they had a few... Uh, a few playoff campaigns in the seasons before Sammy Hippier came in as manager. It didn't quite work. And then Hewton came in and kept them up in that, that first half season. And then the following year, they, they went on and, and finished in the playoffs. So I, I think that's the kind of pedigree we've, we've got available to us. And I just hope that he's given the, the time to really put his stamp on things. Yeah. So if I remember rightly, uh, Chris Hewton took over, I think it was in about October, November time in that first season in Brighton. So maybe about a month less than he's had at Forest, um, but very different type of season, obviously this one. Um, and I think they were 21st when he took over and they finished 20th, but he was using that to build the next season. Um, Tom, do you think that, I mean, one of the criticisms of Hewton seems to come after he does his post-match interviews. Um, his interviews, whether it's a win, lose or a draw, are always done in the same tone of voice. He's always very calm, very steady, which is, you know, his tone is very measured. Do you think it's just that some fans want to hear a little bit more emotion in the manager? I think, it's, I think with any interview, even with players, I think they're all set up because they go for like through media training. And I just think that he's got a consistent tone and that's how he is on the training pitch. I think he's calm, he's a, he's a teacher of the game, he's a, he's a good coach, he's got a good pedigree from being at Spurs in previous um, years, then obviously his managerial career at Newcastle, Birmingham, Norwich and Brighton. So I, I don't take much notice of his tone really. I just long as he's like um, doing the right things on the training ground and replicating that on a Saturday afternoon, that's all I'm bothered about. So, because you get like some managers who like um, will come out really bullish and everything and think, oh, everything's this and that. And you think, well, has he been watching the same game as me? Um, in recent weeks is when they haven't been good enough, he's actually said it. And when they've done okay, he's obviously mentioned the positive. So, um, yeah, I don't take much notice of his tone, really. I just think he's consistent um, throughout, if it's a win, lose or a draw, really. And Baz, I think on that theme, he had been saying, even during the bad run, oh, well, but actually the, the, the level of performance is, is getting better. And so, you know, that was a theme that he kept returning to. Now, whether that's media training or whether that's just his kind of his general demeanour, that kind of steady eddiness about him. Um, do, do you think that we actually, you know, we have seen an increase in, in, in performance levels, um, if not necessarily in terms of the execution of that? I think yes. <laughs> the yes is a short answer. Um, it's one of those, if you remember, um, it's one of, the, yeah, it's, it's kind of, we're starting from a very, very low base. And remember, it's not just this season, it's all the way back from the first lockdown last year that that everything started falling to pieces. So we've got a lot of building to do. And he is, a, as you say, a steady Eddie kind of manager. So he's putting things back one brick at a time and it's going to take a long, long time. But this is when people call for a change of manager, they forget 
that every new manager that comes in needs that time to, to start putting those pieces into place. And that's kind of the problem with changing your manager every season. Um, okay, so in that case, Tom, Martin O'Neill, discuss. Oh no, and we've lost Tom just as I was going to him with that. <laughs> okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to put the same question to you, Stephen, just as uh, we, we, we reconnect with Tom. Yes, I mean, um, probably when you, when, you, when you put it like that and how, you know, how Baz was talking there, I think O'Neill probably should have had a bit more time on principle to, to actually um, create his Forest team and, and, and take, take the club on that way. But... I seem to I seem to remember it was just a real tide of certainly on social media, kind of anti Martin O'Neill rhetoric, and a lot of the fans weren't happy. And obviously, Joao Carvalho wasn't in the team, and that was a real, you know, a real bugbear for a lot of supporters. And obviously, the results were were not. I mean, there were some good ones in there. Obviously, beating Derby was at the city ground that was a obviously a positive result but then there were a few a few defeats on the bounce and, and some poor performances but that was probably due to the to the upheaval that was going on at the time with Karanka leaving and O'Neill coming in so yeah that was an example of where we probably could have given somebody more time but we at the time we probably handled that well because we got rid of O'Neill in the summer and we gave the new manager, which was Sabri Lamushi, we gave him a bit of a run up to the new season to 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 mould a squad and a team in in his image. So if if we were to get rid of a manager like we did with O'Neill, that was probably the right time to do it. Okay, we've got Tom back. So I'm going to ask you a related question to that. So we know that Hewton is a steady Eddie. We know from what Stephen was saying about how he's got this record whereby if, uh, you know, if we can get through this season, then there's a good chance he's going to be able to build and get us competing at the right end of the table next season. Um, now, without wanting to open too much of a can of worms, Tom, do we have confidence that the Forest hierarchy will let him do that have they learnt any lessons uh, I think they've got to because um, in recent years um, it's been a matter of like keep chopping and changing managing we're still in the, uh, the same situation um, I think I think recruitment's massive um, because obviously he's had he's got Lamucci's players there he's got um, players from like um, other um, managers so I think he needs given time uh, get the recruitment right, stamp his authority on the team, um, get this um, season out of the way with minimal damage and um, have a right good go in the, uh, the summer, um, recruit properly and um, hopefully have a better season next season and hopefully we are there to sit in football stadiums um, up and down the country. So, um, yeah, he needs to be given the time because changing managers gets us nowhere. Um, Baz? Just on the uh, before we kind of move on from this line of questioning, um, is there an argument actually Sabri's style wasn't that different from Martin O'Neill's? It's just about how he motivated his players. Um, possibly just before we go on, uh, I'd say that the difference between Martin O'Neill and say Chris Hewton or whoever was that, and I remember this, I remember the number quite clearly. It's after 14 games. Martin O'Neill was saying, I still don't know if he's worth playing because I need to see him on the pitch. So <laughs> he, he, hadn't, he hadn't figured out his own side, his own squad, by 14 games into his tenure. Um, I don't get that feeling. I think Chris Hewton already knows which players he really likes and he's just testing out the extras now, um, which is a very, very different situation. I would say that, yes, to some extent, there was a lot of similarities between the Mushi and... You know, can remember, I can remember particularly complaining vehemently about the possession stats that we had under O'Neill and then having very similar possession stats under Lamushi. But the difference was that we actually had a style of play under Lamushi um, in that O'Neill was like, we're going to sort out the back, we're going to be solid at the back, we're going to let them come on to us. And then when we've got the ball, we don't know what to do with it. Whereas Lamushi was get it forwards, run with it as quickly as possible till the other end of the team and exploit their weaknesses. So it was like, there was a there was a missing piece with what Anil was doing with us. 
Um, yeah, Stephen, on that, um, without wishing to get into the whole thing of transfers, because I think, again, this is I'm very deliberately not having this conversation during the bit about the transfer window, basically. Um, yeah, Hewton clearly has the players that he trusts. One of those is Tobias Figueiredo. Um, now, when for two years, Toby has been the kind of player whereby actually the thing I like about him is he does, he does the simple things effectively and therefore actually to the outside world, you don't notice him that much. This season, we've noticed him either because he's having a really good game or because he's having an absolute stinker and there's nothing in the middle. Um, discuss. It's, it's really disappointing with Toby because, as you say, for the best part of two years, he looked a very good championship centre-back. And then probably since lockdown onwards, the first lockdown, his, his form has just tailed off completely. And to a point where, you know, he, 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 had, to, he had to be dropped from the team because there were goals and there were moments in games where you could pinpoint a Toby mistake leading to a chance being conceded or even worse, a goal going in. So, you know, it's been good that he's, he's come back and had a few good games since, but I'm looking at it and thinking, is there, is he a bit unsettled now at Forest? We know his girlfriend and his, his child are, are back home in Portugal and perhaps he needs a move away back there just to, to kind of get his, get his head right and, and, you know, plays football, uh, more comfortably, if you like. So I do wonder if, for his own good, if he might be somebody that we, we move on. It's not as if we haven't got other options. I think Scott McKenna has been a really good signing and I think him and Worrell are our best two centre-halves. And there's a good balance there of right and left foot, so it just works with the two of them. And and we've got Lurk and Beso who did well, and we've you know we've still got Michael Dawson who could step in if if required, and Tyler Blackett um, re-emerged out of nowhere um, as a left-sided centre half. But I don't want to make this into a thing of should Toby be shipped out. I guess the question is more along the lines of uh, does it seem odd that Hewton keeps putting faith into? He obviously sees something in Toby where he's going. I think that this guy could do a good job. And time after time, Toby is making these costly mistakes and, and he did it again yesterday. So, you know, I don't know, again, just, just really after some thoughts on that. I think he, I think there's a lot of qualities that Toby has, you know, he, he does the simple things very well. He's head it and kick it. And he, he's a powerful guy. When you look at him, he, there's no way he should be he should be bullied off the ball and he should be stronger in the air as well. So I think Hewton looks at those qualities in him and sees a really good defender and the potential for a really good defender. And actually, I would if I was to have a manager working with Toby to try and improve him, it would be Chris Hewton because he he's he's so good at setting up a team defensively and and bringing players on, certainly defensive players, you know, and if you look at what he did at Brighton, turning like Shane Duffy into Premier League regulars, um, players of that ilk. So I, I would be interested to see what, what Hewton can do with Toby, but at the same time, we're kind of in that position where we can't afford too many mistakes. We need to be solid and we need to not be conceding goals and, it might be a case of we, we give Toby a bit more time to develop in that sense and take him out the firing line. Yeah, and I think the point that you made there as well is, is the human side of it. Lockdown's been difficult for everyone. Can you imagine what it's like if you're nearest and dearest in another country at a time that you can't really travel to see them and they can't come and see you? But again, there's a separate footballing issue of, in that case, is it appropriate to have the guy in the team? Um, let's move on from that one. Um, I'm just, I'm going to put you guys on the spot. Um, is there a moment that has summed up the season so far for you? So for me, um, I was going to go for um, 
the goal that Swansea scored against us in the league, where Sammy Amiobi, six foot four Sammy Amiobi, got outjumped by someone who's literally six inches shorter than him. Um, so if ever there was a kind of a moment that kind of summed up how we've underperformed, that was the one I was going to go for. Now, there's a moment that's come up in the last few weeks that I'd be surprised if one of you doesn't pick. Um, Tom, I'm going to put you on the spot first. Can I be greedy and go for three? <laughs> oh, well, let's, let's be generous. Go on. OK, so the first one was um, the goal against Stoke. Uh, where um, Lewis Graben's ducked and it's come off three Samba. And there it is. I was expecting it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there was two yesterday. Um, there was one where Carl Jenkinson's got the ball. He's waited, he's waited, looking for a pass. Then he falls over his own feet. And the third one was Gaiton Bong, who's tried to play it. To, I can't remember who was on the... Was it Lolly or someone on the far side of the pitch yesterday? Hits it straight out for a throw in. I think them three things summed up for this uh, season yeah. so far. And uh, both of those moments from yesterday have gone viral. So second tier podcast uh, <laughs> compared, compared Jenkinson to Ronaldinho in terms of he did the kind of move, pause, move, pause, try to pass it, fall over instead. And then with Gaetan Bong, I saw you'd retweeted it, Tom. And it's actually a nice little dribble into space. And then the simplest part of it is just pass it five yards to, to yeah. a teammate and uh, <laughs> yep, straight out. Um, OK, Stephen, what about you? For me, it's um, Norwich away, where we'd been on a on a difficult run. We couldn't buy a win, and we get a goal at Norwich. Um, we equalise. We're in the game, and then they go up the other end of the field and score a deflected one that comes off Worrell's head and and wrong foots the keeper, and we're back to square one again. And that just kind of sums it up for me that whatever we were doing just didn't work for us we and we just couldn't find a win from anywhere and it also just shows Stephen you're no fun compared to Tom <laughs> anyway <laughs> okay Baz uh, for me it's not a single moment it's more like a, an, an impression or a pattern that keeps happening which is um, ball comes in from our left wing from their right wing on a sort of diagonal cross finds a man completely unmarked who then goes and scores which seems to be a pattern that just happens over and over again to us this season. Yeah, I mean, well, but the thing is, is that, you know, all of those are significant, aren't they? I think that's the thing. So if you're in this position that Forrester in, it is a combination of that little bit of, of bad luck that Stephen alludes to, but also those moments where players who are better just don't seem to be able to produce. And, you know, we've glossed over the grabbing uh, moment against Stoke. This is our most experienced player, the guy who's wearing the armband. It's a simple near post header. It doesn't matter if you think you get a shout. If you're on that front post and the ball's coming towards you, you head it first and ask questions later. And there was a significant question to be asked there about for the guy who's wearing the armband and got shouted at by the guy who a lot of people want to see wearing the armband and his body language and the kind of the way he turned around and kind of on the shrugged his shoulders. Baz, is that what you want to see in a captain? Not at all. I'm, you know, my feelings, I don't think a, a striker should be a captain in the first place, but, um, and Graben being the type of person he is who's quite quiet, I don't want that in the captain either. But no, that's, that's a terrible thing to, to see. Not, not a terrible thing, but it's not what I want to see in the captain. I want to see that, that example and that drive and that, yeah, that, that pushing the rest of the team forwards. And, and Tom, as you picked that as, as one of your moments, I think, uh, I guess the question is, in lockdown football, is it even more important that you have a captain who noticeably leads by example? Because fans watching on screens and without fans being in the ground, the players need that extra and the fans need that extra little boost coming from a really demonstrative captain. Yeah, um... I, I've always said that uh, while uh, since I think he um, made his debut under Montagnier and he had that um, uh, interview against Wolves when I think we got lost like three 0 at City Ground or three one or something like that and he showed like leadership um, qualities. He's from the local area. I'd just give him the captaincy because um, because like I says it is is vocal and I'm not saying grab and cares but it's noticeable that Wall does care of how, is how he's passionate about the club and and everything and I think he should be like um, captain no questions asked uh, basically I think he is perfect um, captain material I know he 
uh, in the last couple of games he's probably not had the greatest games but he's not alone in that um, I think uh, others have had not had great games but I think he should first and foremost be uh, the club um, captain you see Okay, I mean, it's worth remembering that I think technically Michael Dawson's still technically the club captain and he's still there, but he's just not going get, to get a game, is he? Um, I think, uh, yeah, we, we want to see, we wanna see, it's almost like we have to go quite old school, isn't it? If we, one of the peculiarities of English football is that we want to see maybe a local lad, maybe someone who's really kind of super demonstrative be that captain, whereas in loads of other European countries in particular, they just give it to the most experienced player, don't they? Um, and I suspect that that's the reason why Graben's got the armband, is he can say, you're the most experienced player. Stephen, we also hear lots about how well-respected and liked he is in the dressing room, even if his body language to the outer world doesn't seem to reflect that. Um, just, you know, what are your thoughts? Um, I'm also the agreement that Worrell should probably be the captain because he just he gets what it is to be a Nottingham Forest player. He's come through the ranks and he just gets what it is and what it means to him and what it should mean to, for somebody to play for Forest. But in terms of grabbing, I, I do understand why he's captain. I just, I don't, on the pitch, he he's not that kind of, say that vocal, almost bombastic leader that sometimes you need. And even as well, it, he's been in and out of the team this season. He's been injured and he's had his spells his spells out. And I think you just want a regular captain to to almost take control and we've we've not really had that with Graben because he's been in and out this season and Baz just last word on this topic to you um yeah so we all agree that symbolically for fans it would be really important to see a local lad who really wears his heart on his sleeve have the armband um the word on the street at the start of the season was that um, Graben was basically given the captaincy as a bit of a carrot at a time when there was doubts over his future. You know, would he get, you know, especially when he had the offer um, to go um, and play his football in the Middle East, but also um, the fact that after Watson leaving and Dawson not being a regular, that he was the most senior player. It's like, and Taylor joining, it's like, no, Lewis, we want to put faith in you. Is that a good enough reason? I, well, certainly I can understand it from the, the Taylor joining part, but um, there, there is, it depends what you think the captain's role is to some extent. And it's part of it is like we were just hinting earlier about Chris Hutton in his post-match interviews, his style, the way he speaks, isn't what some, what some fans are looking for in a manager. And we were saying, well, for us, it's okay. But then for, we're also saying the way that Worrell carries himself on the pitch and the way Graben carries himself on the pitch isn't what we're looking for in a captain. So we're looking for different things from different roles within, within the club. Um, I'm sure that there are people out there. And I can remember reading about um, Guardiola and one of the things he didn't want a vocal captain because he has all these playbooks of how he wants his players to act. When the ball's over here and the opposition are over here, then I want you to do this. So if you've got a vocal captain yelling out on the, on the pitch, then he's basically overriding the playbooks. Now, do we have that? Probably not, but I don't know. I, I don't know enough about how we're coached internally, if that makes sense. But if we want a side that simply does what the manager tells them to do, even when things are going badly, then you don't want a vocal captain. Personally, I would like to see a vocal captain because, as you say, without the fans, well, I've always wanted to see a vocal captain, but without the fans there, we need someone to give that, that kick up the arse when we're on the pitch. But it's interesting you mentioned that about Pep, because obviously when he took over, Vincent Company was the captain, who is that kind of old school English type leader. And then he gave it to David Silva, who isn't that kind of player, but is a very much a heart on sleeve, leads by example, um, kind of, you know, technically gifted, but he wasn't scared to roll his sleeves up as well. So that's an interesting thought. But it's time to move on because we have a new feature for you. And the feature is Guess That Red. Welcome to Guess That Red. So we're going to have five clues. Um, what I'm going to ask you to do is after each clue, if you want to buzz in, if you know the answer. So just say your name and um, let me know if you know who the player is. Play along at home, won't you? So clue number one, this player signed his first professional contract with Forrest as a 17-year-old. 
and he played alongside Jermaine Genus in the under-19 championship-winning side of 2001. I've got a sea of blank faces looking back at me. All right, let's move on to clue number two. This player played 77 first-team matches for Forest, of which approximately half were coming off the bench. Paul Hart gave him his debut. Keith Hoy. Oh. No. <laughs> no. Is incorrect. Um, quest, uh, clue number three. After leaving Forest, this player went on to play for Rotherham and Crew Alexandra, as well as a very Tom. brief... Tom, go on. It's Eugen Bopp. It is Eugen Bopp. Congratulations. <laughs> let's, let's, let's pipe in some crowd noise like they do on the football <laughs> the telly. Um, okay. Uh, yes, well done. Um, can you guess what the other two clues were going to be then, Tom? Um, play, played in the youth setup at, well, before he signed for us, played for Bayern Munich. I didn't include that, but that that is a very good clue. Yeah, um, it would have given it away too easy. And the other one was, well, I think the other one would have been that he was a German youth international, but born in Kiev. Which also would have given it away too easily. But what, so clue number four was going to be, he had two caps for the German under-19 team. And in the second, he was substituted for Philip Lahm. <laughs> Told you we'd mention him again. <laughs> so, what? what? Wasn't it? Uh, I don't. There was a rumor going around a few years ago when he was playing for Dunkirk, and um, when Bastian Schweinsteiger signed for United, I think they got like a, a fan, um, like a bit of investment. I don't know how true that was, but that was the rumor doing the rounds at the time. Well, bearing in mind I live not that far from that neck of the woods, I've not seen any evidence that Dunkirk FC have had any investment <laughs> from a multi-millionaire World Cup winning footballer. <laughs> so, um, and then the final one, which really would have been the clincher, I think, for those of us who were there at the time, his most famous Forest moment came when he scored his looping volley against Gillingham, relegating them along with us to League One. Did you um, remember the headline for that one? Gillingham uh, sunk by a German sub. <laughs> oh, I don't think you could write that one anymore could you? <laughs> that was a great moment though I was so happy that we took Gillingham down with us at the same time it was, it was proper schadenfreude it was, well no pun intended yes. <laughs> but there was an, uh, about 25 years previous because uh, it's my dad's 60th on um, Tuesday and I've, um, one of his favourite games is um uh, the Cologne three-three game, and I've got you know the um, the retro teletext mugs. What you can get, so I got him one of them, and um, and I think the um, the headline from that game is "Forest sunk by a Japanese sub." So, <laughs> Once again, uh... these things are very much of their time, aren't they? <laughs> there is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, unfortunately, we have to finish it there. So, thank you so much to our panel today: Stephen Topless, Baz, and Tom Newton. Um, as I say, we'll continue going with those match reports. Uh, we want to bring you um, the opinions, not just of us, but also of our um, opposing fans and see if they still think that we're too good to go down, basically. Um, and then in the first week of February, we'll be joined by George Harvey. Um, we'll have a review of Forest's activity in the transfer window, players in, players out, and how this sets up Forest for the uh, run-in this season. Uh, thank you so much for listening and keep with us. Keep an eye on your feed. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And if you would like to leave us a review, particularly if you're using Apple Podcasts, then please do because it helps other listeners to find our podcast. In the meantime, look after yourselves and we'll be back soon. Sports Social Podcast Network. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.